Good evening, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Terror Radio Podcast. If this is your first time joining me, then welcome. This is a podcast dedicated in bringing you the best of horror and thriller old-time radio broadcasts, as well as original stories. I am your host, Keith, a.k.a. The Radio Show Nerd, and... Tonight's episode is entitled Short But Spine Chilling Number 2, where I feature radio series that only have radio plays that are no longer than 10 to 15 minutes, but are still nerve wracking, (laughs) if you will. So, without further ado, this is Terror Radio. The two radio series highlighted tonight come from BBC Radio. The first being Just Before Midnight. And I debuted that series on my episode Not For The Squeamish a few weeks ago. And this was a series that featured 15-minute radio plays which were in the mystery suspense and horror genre and the series was created in 1964 following that is the BBC radio series The Strange and the Sinister and this was created in 1961 and narrated by Scottish writer William Croft Dickinson who introduced his stories that delve within the supernatural. The first two radios plays today are The Dare Game, which was first broadcasted on just before midnight on January 13th, 1964, followed by The Disposal of Digby, which was first broadcasted on February 26th, 1964. Following that are the radio plays The Work of Evil, which was first broadcasted on The Strange and Sinister on October 12th, 1961, followed by Let the Dead Bury Their Dead. And that was first broadcasted on October 10th, 1961. So, you all know the drill. Sit back, turn down the lights, and listen to The Dare Game, The Disposal of Digby, The Work of Evil, concluding concluding with Let the Dead Bury Their Dead. A chance meeting between old school friends. The simplest thing in the world, but it leads to a revival of The Dare Game. I so fum. I sniffed the whiff of a dare to come. I beg your pardon? You are Carol Maine, aren't you? Yes, at least I was. Oh, it's Enid. <laughs> Enid Grover. That's right. Good heavens, what an extraordinary thing. How many years is it? Fifty. Oh, imagine, we're certain. I know, isn't it awful? And school seems like another world. It's still very vivid to me. Is it? Oh, not to me. I remember odds and bits. I remember you. Thanks. <laughs> 
I suppose you're married, Carol. Yes, I'm a doctor's wife. Children? Two boys, seven and ten. What about you? I'm not married. Look, Enid, this is so fantastic meeting in the street like this. Have you time for coffee? Yes, I'd like that. Uh, there's, there's a place across the road. I've got loads of shopping to do, but I don't come up to the West End very often, but that can wait till afterwards. Sugar, Enid? No, thanks. Oh, sensible of you. Tell me, Enid, what are you doing now? I'm on sick leave. I've been ill. Oh, I'm sorry. What was wrong? Nobody quite knew. It was politely called a breakdown. But I shall be back at work next week. And your work? I'm in the civil service. Home office, to be precise. Still? Why not? I remember you going in for the exams when we were at school. Janet and Irene did, too. But the last I saw them, they'd left. Married, I expect. Yes. When one doesn't marry, Carol, one goes on working. I've never found anyone willing to support me. But there's more to marriage than that, you know. Really? You haven't changed. <laughs> That's all you know. You haven't, Enid. You were always too clever for me, and you still are. I still feel there's something behind quite ordinary things you say. Funny. I remember that about you. And when I've thought of you since, I I've concluded that I imagined it. But I didn't. It's true. You still make me feel naive. I was the naive one, surely. You? You were the most left-headed of a lot of us. Remember the dare game, Carol? Fee, fi, fo, fum. I sniffed the whip of a dare to come. <laughs> <laughs> School's extraordinary. All those hours and hours of lessons and one doesn't remember a word of them. Yet silly things like, like the way Miss Legging spat as she talked. Oh, and yes. those shapeless jumpers and scumber <laughs> used to wear. And our various scrapes and dares all remembers them vividly. Yes. The worst dare I ever did was spilling that ink in Miss Wilkins' desk. Oh, there was an awful moment when I thought she'd guessed it wasn't an accident. But you got away with it. I didn't get away with my worst dare, did I? What was that? Don't you remember? We, oh, we did so many things, didn't we? I've even forgotten some of my own dares. But you haven't forgotten the ring. Oh, no. No, that was pretty awful. Oh, but isn't it funny to look back on? We took ourselves so seriously as if it mattered what happened. She never believed me, you know. What? Miss Gordon. She never believed me. She made a remark on the day I left which showed that she still thought I was a thief. Silly woman. Why silly? No one told her otherwise. I'm sorry, Enid. Fifteen years too late, I'm sorry. So you do remember? Yes. Why did you pretend not to? Guilty conscience. And then, when I dared you that day, I never really thought you'd do it. As soon as I'd said it, I wished I hadn't. Miss Gordon took off her ring, didn't she, and put it on the desk. Then she went over to the sink of the corner of the physics lab and washed her hands. And you whispered to me our usual challenge. Fee-fi-fo-fum, I sniff the whiff of a dare to come. I dare you, Enid, to take Miss Gordon's ring. So I took it. I wish you hadn't. There's something that's always puzzled me. When old Gordon began to make a fuss and asked where her ring was and if we'd seen it, why didn't you hand it over straight away? You'd done the dare. There was no reason to hang on to the ring. I didn't have time to tell her. Oh, sure. No, that kid at the back, Lily Carr, she piped up with, Miss Gordon, I saw Enid Grover take your ring. Then Gordon accused me, and that was that. Well, you denied it at first. Panic. Then she found it in my pocket. And she didn't believe me. Well, she pretended to because she was scared of trouble. But she would have believed me if you'd spoken up and told her about the dare game. Beastly little coward, wasn't I? You wanted to hurt me. Did I? You know you did. Why? Enid, I honestly don't know. Kids do things, don't they? Well, maybe I was jealous of you because you were cleverer than I was. Because you had a sort of power over me. 
I don't know. Come to that, there was nothing to stop you from telling Miss Gordon about the day again. I was too proud. I decided to let her think what she liked. I told her it had been done as a joke, and that was the truth. You know, Enid, you're being a bit kinky bringing up all this stuff that happened when we were kids. What does it matter now? I think when people do something wrong, like betraying a friend, it stays just as wrong however many years pass. Maybe, but there's no need to go on brooding about it. There was never any need for you to brood, was there? You got off scot-free. So did you? After all, you did take the ring. It was awfully silly of you. I had no choice. Of course you had. But you dared me. So what? If you dared me to take a valuable ring, I wouldn't have done it. Oh, yes, you would. That was the dare game. We always carried out each other's dares. Always. Oh, Enid, stop. I can't understand why you're still niggling about it all after these years. It was the injustice. It was never tidied up. Okay, let's tidy it up now. I'll buy you a present to make amends. Something pretty. A scarf, earrings, what would you like? <laughs> Trying to buy me off for the sake of your conscience? Oh, don't be such a prig. <laughs> All right, Carol. Let's go to the shops now and look at the pretty things. Here's the costume jewellery counter. Now what would you like, Enid? There's some nice earrings on this tray. Oh, where's the assistant? She doesn't seem to be around. Oh, well, we can be choosing. Fie, foe, fum. I sniffed the whiff of a dare to come. Oh, no. I dare you, Carol, to put that pair of green earrings in your pocket and walk out. Oh, don't be a damn fool. Look, I've offered to buy you a present. Do you want one or not? Fie, fie, foe, fum. I sniffed the whiff he of a dare to fooling. come. For the second time, I dare you, Carol, to put that pair of green earrings in your pocket and walk out. I dare you, Carol. I dare you. Come. Of course you can. I dare you. You can bring them back afterwards. Go on. Take them. Walk out. And then come back. I'll wait for you here. And then honour will be satisfied for good and all. All right. It's quite mad, but still. Here goes. Oh, to the manor born. Do you come here often? Don't watch me as I walk out. Of course I shan't. I'm going to wait here by the counter. Bye for the press. If I get caught, I'll blame it all on you. So, so this is what it feels like to be a thief. I'll never do this again as long as I live. Am I doing it anyway? School day codes die hard, I suppose, like childhood religion. Enid's mad. Quite mad. And so am I to be doing this. I do believe that all through my life, if anyone says to me, fee, five, oh, for my sniff the whiff of a dare to come, I'd do whatever they said. Nearly at the doors now. All I've got to do is to get outside. That'll complete the dare. Then I can go back. Swing doors. Open. Outside at last. Oh, oh, I've done it. I'll be able to tell John when I get home. Oh, maybe I won't. He'd be furious. Taking a risk like that, he'd say. Oh, now I can go back. Oh, who are you? 
Take your hand off my arm. Excuse me, madam, but the manager would like a word with you. With me? Why? Uh, please come this way, madam. But, but who are you? I'm the store detective, madam. Oh, dear. But come along through these doors. Wait, wait a minute. Is it the earrings? Well, here they are. Thank you, madam. How did you know? I saw you. Oh, I remember seeing you now. I, I thought you were a customer. Now, that is the general idea. Now, come along, madam, please. It was only a joke, you know. I, I'm not a thief. It was a game I was having with a friend. We used to dare each other to do things when we were kids. The dare game, we used to call it. She dared me. It was a joke. She'll tell you. Oh, Enid. What's up, Carol? This lady's a detective. She saw me. Enid, please tell her about the dare game. The what? Uh, tell her that you dared me to take the earrings for a joke. You took some earrings? Well, you know I did. I'm sorry, Carol. I don't approve of shoplifting, even when my friends do it. Leave me out of it. Now, your friend obviously can't help you, madam, so will you come and see Mr. Marlin, the manager, straight away, please? But, but, but you've got the earrings back now. This way, madam. Enid! Now, come along, madam, please. All right, but, but I'm telling the truth. That's exactly what happened, Mr. Marlin. Oh, I, I know it sounds crazy, but it's true. I've never stolen anything in my life, and I did intend to bring the earrings back again. It was just a joke. Very well, Mrs. Gray. I'll accept your explanation. I don't particularly wish to call in the police, but I'd be glad if you keep away from the store in future. So you, you, you don't believe that it was a joke? As we are taking no action, I don't see why that should matter to you. But of course it matters. I'm not a thief. I have a great deal to do, Mrs. Gray. So if you'd care to see yourself out... Hello. I thought I'd wait for you. Isn't it? How did you get on? Go away. I don't want to speak to you. Did he believe you, Carol? Of course. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here, would I? <laughs> I bet he didn't. So he let me go. But doesn't mean he believed you. Well, now you know what it feels like. Not very pleasant, is it? Enid, will you clear off and leave me alone? Oh, poor Carol. Have I spoiled your nice morning shopping in town? You've done more than spoil it. The whole thing makes me feel quite sick. Frankly, I think you've gone off your head. Enid. How could you have behaved like that? You deliberately lied in the shop. You're so right. But I did more than lie. You haven't looked at me properly. Looked at you? Yes. Have a good look. Those earrings you're wearing. I saw them on the tray in the shop. Did you buy them? No. Then, then how did you get them? <laughs> you, you stole them? Yes. <laughs> it's evidently something I do better than you. All a matter of practice. I started young, you see, when I took the ring. Oh, no, Enid, you can't blame everything on a childhood dare. And I don't think pinching things in shops is funny or clever. Oh, from one who's just been nabbed by a store detective, I find that remark rather comic. Do you often take things? Whenever I'm in the mood. Don't you ever get caught? I was once, in a different town, when I was less skillful than I am now. What happened? I wasn't as lucky as you've been today. The manager sent for the police and charged me. But I engaged a good solicitor, and he engaged an advocate to defend me, and he found a psychiatrist who said it was all due to my frustrations. He got me off. You paid people to tell lies for you? Lies? My dear Carol, every word that psychiatrist said was true. It is my frustrations that make me swipe things from shops. I have a perfectly good salary. I could afford to buy anything within reason. It's so much more exciting to steal things. Women with empty lives have to make their own excitement, you see. It's different for you. You have your husband and children. Don't grudge me my hobby. Hobby? Certainly. And I owe it to you, really. If it hadn't been for the dare game, I'd never have got started. 
And if you had cleared my name in those far-off days, I might never have realised that it's not what one does that matters. It's what people believe about one. You are now regarded as a shoplifter. You won't be welcome in that store again, but I can go in whenever I like. So now I'll say goodbye, Carol. It's been so nice meeting you and, and tidying everything up. Margaret Wolfitt and Shirley Cooklin in The Dare Game by Rosemary Timperley, produced for the BBC by Keith Williams. Digby, what are you doing in here? Uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Kendrick. Merely a question, Digby. Uh, this is my office, isn't it? Oh, yes. Uh, the uh, figures arrived from the Ministry of Supply. I thought you'd need them for your meeting. But why are you over by that file? Uh, the uh, papers were loose. I was... I'm looking for a folder. Uh, all right, get them here. Yes, sir. Thank you, Digby. <laughs> oh, Mr. Kendrick, I wonder... Yes, what is it? Well, it concerns my annual leave, sir. Your what? Leave? Uh, holidays, sir. I did broach the matter last month. Uh, well, I know it's rather short notice, sir, but if possible, I'd like to go off from the first. Well, in a bit of a rush, aren't we? Uh, doctor advised it, a uh, health reason. Thinks I'm run down. Oh. You're going to chase the sun, are we? No, sir. Uh, trip to the Far East. Far East? Uh, always wanted to go. I thought I might visit Hong Kong and then perhaps Japan. Oh. Yes. Uh, yes, why not? Um, uh, very well, Digby. Oh. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Hello, switchboard. Mr. Kendrick here. Put me through to the minister, will you? And hurry. It's urgent. Are you sure you won't, Kendrick? Uh, Fine, Mr. Barrow. Uh, no, no, not for me, Sir General. I, um, I hope I didn't disrupt your meeting, sir. You did. But never mind. Uh, it's, um, Stigby, sir. Digby? Uh, the fourth secretary in charge of synthetic foods. Oh, yes. Uh, very competent. Uh, was. Be worried about him. Security, you mean? Uh, well, uh, this morning I caught him in my office. Is that so unusual? No, but uh, he was over by my secret file. The file on Project Avalon. Avalon? You're certain? Positive, sir. He appeared flustered, and then he asked for leave. Leave? To travel where? A far east. Hong Kong. Good Lord. Stone's throw from Peking. And a direct route to Moscow. Exactly. He usually goes to Torquay. And certainly no further than Switzerland. You can see why I called you, sir. Yes, I'm glad you did. A leak at this time might ruin the entire project. Avalon's British, and it must remain British. One word, just a whisper, and... Oh. Couldn't we detain him somehow, sir? Be very tricky, no grounds. Oh, of course, sir, I may be doing him an injustice. But we can't take the risk. Beyond cabinet level, there are barely a handful who know. Tell me, is he married? Uh, no, sir. How about close relatives? Oh, none, according to his father. Excellent. Then we shall dispose of him. Yes, we shall dispose of our Mr. Digby. Um, dispose, you say? But how, sir? How? Oh, come along, Kendrick. The only way... Sorry you haven't forgotten Miss Trevelyan. <laughs> Doubtful if anyone could forget Miss Trevelyan. I do so agree with you, Kendrick. Bewitching eyes, enchanting voice, 
Most regrettable. The uh, same routine, sir. To the letter. Project Avalon must remain secret. You have my orders, Kendrick. Dispose of Digby. Oh, uh, Digby. Oh, yes, sir. I just thought I'd bid you bon voyage. Oh, thank you, sir. All packed? Uh, well, more or less. Uh, when do you leave, exactly? Sunday night. Mm, can't wait to be off, hmm? Oh, I expect I shall miss the whole place. And we shall miss you, too, Digby. A happy flight. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Take this, sir. Oh, that's a bit of luck. I rang for one, but my phone's out of order. Thought I'd miss my plane. Well, John Peter, then is that case all right? Yes, fine. <laughs> I, I say, you haven't asked me where I want to go. Oh, didn't you say, Radwick, sir? Oh, did I? Oh, sorry. Well, anyway, I must be there by 10.30. Don't worry, sir. I'll have you there on time. Driver, surely I want the main airport building. No, it's closer. Temporary. Doing some alterations. Oh, well, i better settle up with you and then see if I can find a porter. Don't worry, sir. Here's one now. Passport, sir. Oh, yes, here we are. Uh, would you kindly remove your bowler, sir? My bow. You, oh, I'm so sorry. Your destination, sir? Hong Kong. Your flight's already been called, sir. Just follow the blue light. Oh, thank you. Excuse me, please. Yes, sir? Uh, flight 748, Hong Kong. This mist, I can't see a thing. Yes, visibility is rather poor, but uh, this way for flight 748. You comfortable, sir? Fine. Not many people aboard, though, are there? We pick up most of our passengers en route. I see. Now, uh, coffee, sir? Uh, before we take off? There may be a slight delay. The weather. Oh. Well, in that case, please. Any milk? Just a day. Thank you. My pleasure, sir. What a charming girl. Mm -hmm. Nice figure, too. Mm, delicious coffee. It's hard. I feel rather sleepy. I can hardly keep my eyes open. Oh, we're moving. No delay after all. Mr. Digby. Mr. Digby. How are you feeling, Mr. Digby? Oh, a little busy. Hmm, not surprised. Doctor, are you? How did you guess? What am I doing here? Don't you remember? Oh, no. Well, one minute I boarded a plane at Radwick Airport. Oh, well, that's something. No amnesia. But how did I get here? Your plane hit a magnetic storm after leaving Karachi. I'm taking miles off course. 
Then you crash-landed. Must have hit your head on the front seat. Barely concussed by the look of you. But what is this place? Oh, just a tiny island off the coast. Well, it's British territory. That's something. Was anyone else hurt? Well, there were a few scrapes and bruises, but everyone's left for the mainland. Well, if you don't mind, I would like my clothes, and I must be on my way. You can have your clothes, certainly, but you won't be able to leave the island just yet. Well, why not? <laughs> well, we've no airport here. The plane crash-landed in the jungle. But there are boats, surely. Mm, very infrequent, though. And you've just missed one. Won't be another for months. But there must be some way of getting to the mainland. Not unless you're a strong swimmer. That's not very funny, Doctor. The coast of India is at least 400 miles away. Then there's very little point in getting up just yet, is there? I presume there is a British consul here. Yes. Right. And I shall have a word with him. Oh, do come in, Mr. Digby. Braithwaite, British consul. How do you do? Could I trouble you for your passport? Oh, certainly. Thank you. Well, I was on my way to Hong Kong. First leave for some years. I doubted there'll be another boat here for some time, and we've no landing strip. Oh, what about a helicopter? <laughs> yes. Smart chap, that's an idea. Rather costly to hire, though. Might land you with a bill for several hundred. Oh, but it's the airline's responsibility. They must bear the cost. Yes, I suppose I could contact them by radio. After all, you work for the ministry, don't you? How do you know that, sir? Well, uh, uh, your passport. Oh, of course. I'll contact them at the same time. Maybe they can pull a few strings. If you pop back this afternoon, I'll give you all the gem. Well, I, I'm very much obliged to you. My pleasure. Oh, by the way, hmm? shouldn't go wandering about the island. Oh, why not? The natives, rather primitive. Uh, yes, I noticed the barbed wire enclosure. We're just completing our defences. Defences? Usual military installations. No other way of keeping the enemy at bay, is there? No, I suppose not. So you stay this side of the fence, won't you? You're my responsibility, and I'd hate anything to happen to you. Ah, oh, Mr. Digby, I hope I haven't kept you waiting. No, Mr. Braithwaite, I was here a trifle earlier. Well, I'm afraid there's little hope of your leaving here just yet. But haven't you been in touch with the airline? Yes. They refuse to accept responsibility. But what about the ministry? Been in touch with them personally, most concerned. Said you were a chap of outstanding ability. So I suggested that perhaps you could work here for the time being. Work? At the consulate. But my holiday... They'll grant you leave at a later date. But I really... I'm afraid there's no alternative, old chap. Now, I'm sure we'll get along fine. And with your flair for organization, you'll be a great asset to us. Far better than hanging about doing nothing, don't you agree? Yes, I suppose. Fine, then that's settled. Now, we must get you fixed up with accommodation. The staff bungalows are very pleasant, prefabricated, but every modern convenience. And you'll find we've quite a social life here. Now, I'll call my secretary and get her to arrange things. Hello. Won't you come in, please, Mr. Valium? Thank you. Now, if there's anything you need, just ask Miss Trevelyan. She's very obliging. Ah, Miss Trevelyan. This is Mr. Digby, joining our staff for a while. Hello, Mr. Digby. Hello. Well, if you'll excuse me, I must leave you, Digby. Important conference. Yes, of course. Miss Trevelyan will look after you, I'm quite sure. Glad to have you with us, Mr. Digby. Glad to be here. 
My plane crash-landed. Did it now? How unfortunate. Yes. Well, still, it seems a pleasant little place. A few months here won't do me any harm. I gather there's quite a social life here. Mm. What does one do about food? Most people eat in the staff canteen, but uh, I prefer to cook for myself. Uh, why don't you join me? Join you? For dinner. Mind the little bungalow past the main building. That's awfully kind of you. Not at all. I'll be expecting you about 8.30... I thought we'd eat out here on the terrace, Mr. Digby. Fine. Well, it's such a beautiful night. It's awfully nice of you, Mr. Vellin. Cora, please. <laughs> Cora. <laughs> Pretty. Cora, did you say? Hmm. Cora Trevelyan. Something wrong? You can't be the Cora Trevelyan. I mean the one who... Who what? Well, the one who disappeared. Vanished. There was quite a splash about it. But I didn't uh, disappear, Mr. Digby. Uh -huh. No, I was um, removed, uh, disposed of. <laughs> Mr. Fenneman, you're pulling my leg, of course. Well, you don't think I'm here through choice, do you? The ministry considered I was a threat to security, so I was um, abducted and brought here. So he kidnapped you? Oh, not just me. You too, Mr. Digby. I've seen your file. You didn't land here by accident. <laughs> Why should they do that? You're a threat to security. Threat to... Oh, nonsense. Weren't you part of Project Avalon? Yes, yes, but it's top secret. I, I knew nothing about the actual project. Oh, this is ridiculous. They can't keep us here forever. Can't they? No. I'll build a raft. There's no point. There must be some way of escape. There isn't. Now, let's have a drink and sit here and enjoy the evening. Hmm? Yeah. All right. Uh, I must say, it is rather a beautiful moon. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's the huh? Well, I said, was it's rather a beautiful moon. But that's not the moon, Mr. Bigby. That's the earth? Yes. Yes, my dear Mr. Bigby. We're on the secret project. The planet Avalon. The Disposal of Digby by Philip Levine. With John Badley as Digby, Garrett Green as Kendrick, Austin Trevor, Sir Gerald, Margaret Wolfett, Miss Trevelyan, Peter Pratt as the taxi driver and the doctor. Valerie Kirkbright and Peter Bartlett complete the cast. Ever since his return to duty after a protracted nervous breakdown, Make and Allen, our deputy librarian, had seemed reluctant to grant any access to the rare books which were in his charge. So I was completely taken by surprise when, after asking to see an early Italian book, he'd answered, Come, and I'll show you the whole collection. Was this simply a piece of unexpected good fortune, or had the old man some ulterior purpose? Leading the way to the rare book room, Alan ushered me in. There they are, he said, pointing to one of the stacks. The whole collection, a frightening collection. The book you want happens to be there, but 
it's a stranger there. As for the others, I hate them. And his voice rose nervously as if in emphasis. Well, I walked over to the stack, but I noticed that Alan stood aside. And having found the volume I wanted, I, I began to look at the rest. They were all works of the late 15th or early 16th century, a, a priceless collection. But every work was on the same theme. I said, turning towards Alan, they're all on black magic and necromancy. Who on earth collected all this devilry? An unfortunate young man whose history you know as well as I do, answered Alan. John... Third Earl of Gowrie. When he became a law student at Padua, after studying here, he was said to have dabbled in magic. Well, here's his library, or part of it, and I wish it had never survived. And again I noticed this nervous pitch in his voice. So I, I replied lightly, Well, if he did dabble in the black heart, he must have found it pretty ineffective. Alan turned on me. Ineffective? I wish to God you were right. Do you see that safe over there? It contains another of Gowrie's books. No one knows it's there but myself and now you. Listen to me. You, you must listen to me. The book in that safe does work. I ought to take it and throw it deep into the sea, but I can't do it. I'm afraid. It's only one small book, but it is evil itself. That book throttles the man who dares to open it. I looked at him in blank amazement. Whatever do you mean, I asked. I wish I knew. All I can tell you is that two men who have looked into that book have both been throttled to death. After a moment he went on. This collection came to us towards the end of the war. It came from the local antiquarian society. It had been in their possession, apparently forgotten and virtually lost for a century and a half, ever since Gowrie House was pulled down in 1805. There's a story that in the course of that demolition, the books were discovered in a wall closet which had been panelled in and so lost to sight. And that may well be so. Perhaps Gowrie himself had become afraid and had put one particular book with all its fellows into a hidden closet, as I have put that one particular book into a safe. Perhaps he too was afraid to do the one thing that he ought to have done and, and that I ought to have done. For no one can open that book and still live. First it was Fraser. He was our professor of chemistry before you came. As soon as this collection arrived, he was in here day after day with his notebook, <laughs> working out the formula, he used to say to me. <laughs> Some of them are oh, quite interesting. Ah, but one day he read too much. I'd been working elsewhere that afternoon, and I didn't come back here until nearly closing time. When I came in, Fraser didn't nod to me with his usual smile. Instead, as he looked up at my entrance, I saw that his face was white and drawn. My God, Alan, he said to me, 
This book is the devil himself. It should be burned, burned to ashes. He got up from his chair and he seemed to recover himself a little. Look, he said, I'm putting it in here, in this empty case. Now lock it in and let no one, no one ever read it again. And he stood to that wire-fronted case over there and thrust the book in and waited for me to lock the door with my master's key. He seemed to stumble as he went out of the room. I remember that only too well. But that very night, he was found dead in his own room in the lab. He had a queer kind of a lab coat, which he was very proud of. It, it was rather like an old-fashioned smock, tied by a fancy cord round the neck. And when he was found, that cord had been drawn so tight that it had throttled him. And his students were sure, absolutely sure, that he had been alone in that room. His death was a mystery, until suddenly, maybe a fortnight later, I knew the truth. Now, don't ask me how I knew it, but I knew that Fraser had been killed by the devilry of that book. And frightened as I was, I still had the courage to do one thing. Unknown to the rest of the staff, I removed from the library catalogue all the entries relating to it. No one should read that book again. No one should even know of its existence. Had I dared, I would have burned it. As Fraser had said, it should be burned, but I couldn't bring myself to touch it. I was afraid of it. And so young Ingalls had to die. Unluckily, I had been off for a few days with influenza, and during my absence, Ingalls had been told to check part of the catalogue. You can imagine my horror when, on the day of my return to duty, I found him here, sitting and holding the book in his hand, open and reading it. And as soon as he saw me, he called out, here, I found an incunabulum which isn't in the catalogue. I rushed up and, and seized the thing from him. I, I shoved it back into the case and relocked the door. Well, he, he, he looked at me open-mouthed. So I, I made some feeble excuse, which I, I know he didn't believe, and sent him off. And then I sat down at the table there, and I, I felt sick and faint. What could I do to save him? Nothing. I knew that he was doomed. <laughs> he didn't escape. When the library was closing that night, the porter found that the automatic lift wouldn't work, and naturally he assumed that someone had failed to shut one of the lift doors. And he went to look. He found the door that wasn't shut all right. He found Ingalls, trapped by the outer door and trapped by the neck almost as though he'd, he'd gone into the lift and then, just as the door was sliding to it, had put out his head to look at something. I tell you, the pressure of those left doors is so light that you can, you can hold them back easily with one finger. And yet Engels was dead, throttled by the light pressure of a lift door. Can you wonder that I had what was called a nervous breakdown? I was away for over a year. As you know, I've only been back for a month or so. Oh, probably you think I'm mad or suffering from delusions. Yet I was the only person who knew that Ingalls had opened the book. I was the only person who knew that Ingalls was doomed to die. Just 
as Fraser had died. Oh, God, forgive me, I should have destroyed the thing, but I couldn't bring myself to touch it. Yet today... I summoned up courage to move it out of the bookcase and lock it away in that safe. And there it lies, alone. But I'm still afraid. The next morning, Wallace, one of our lecturers, and Alan's next-door neighbour, knocked on my retiring room door and came quietly in. I came to tell you that Maitland Allen died last night. Died, I repeated. Yes. All very strange. Last night his housekeeper heard him in his study, walking up and down and repeating, I will do it, I will do it. And then she heard him go out into the hall. Peeping round her door, she saw him put on a cap and his scarf and his overcoat and literally rush out of the house. Well, by this time she was pretty alarmed and she came and knocked on our door. And my wife thought she was so upset that in the end I offered to go in and wait up with her for Alan's return he didn't come back until nearly two o'clock this morning and as he shut the front door we heard him give a, a queer kind of a, a strangled cry we rushed out into the hall and saw him half hanging from the door and half sprawled on the rug in the hall one end of his scarf had become trapped in the door when he'd shut it and when he'd turned round, the scarf had caught him by the neck. Well, we opened the door at once and released him, but when we tried to help him to his feet again, we found to our horror that he was dead. I came over to tell you because I... But I was no longer listening. Fraser, Ingalls, and now Alan. How could it be mere coincidence? And yet, how could Alan's tale be true? At the Procurator Fiscal's inquiry into the cause of death, a boatman stated that Alan had knocked him up at midnight and had asked to be rowed a full mile out to sea. At first the man had demurred because, well, he said that Alan seemed fair demented, was the phrase he used, but an offer of five pounds had persuaded him. He'd rowed Alan out to sea, and when he told him that they were well beyond the full mile for which he'd asked, Alan had suddenly plucked a small book from his overcoat pocket and hurled it down into the water with all his force. And then, said the boatman, he crouched down in the boat as though he were afraid someone was going to hit him. And he stayed like that till I tied up again. And then he jumped out of the boat and ran along the quay as if old Nick himself were chasing him. And the doctors were puzzled but unanimous. Despite the softness and natural elasticity of the scarf, They'd been surprised to find a sharp mark round Alan's neck. But they were convinced that he had died of shock. They said his heart was in poor condition and that any shock would probably be too much for it. <laughs> a shock? I knew only too well what would flash through that poor wretch's mind when he felt that sudden, unexpected tightening of his scarf round his neck. So much I had written down a week ago when my mind was free. But how different it is today. Today, all Alan's fear and dread are my own. Today, at the close of the library committee, our librarian 
mentioned that when checking the rare book room he had found inside the safe a book from the Gowrie collection but one which to his surprise had no entry in the catalogue I found my way back to my room a prey to every wild imagining can it be that Alan deranged and overwrought on that fatal night cast the wrong book away how could he there was only one book inside the safe yet how can a book return from the bottom of the sea and what can I do already our librarian has handled it and opened it The Work of Evil by William Croft Dickinson was read by Moultrie Kelsall and presented by the BBC. Has an archaeologist any qualms when he's excavating an early burial? asked Drummond, turning to our professor of prehistory. Do the bones ever give you the creeps? Abercrombie paused before answering. Quite a long pause. Sometimes they do, he conceded at last. I could tell you of an experience I had myself when I was still a young lecturer. And to be frank, that's why I've concentrated on Iron Age forts. Even now I shrink from graves of any kind. We all waited expectantly. <clears throat> there seems to be no reason why I shouldn't tell you. As I said, I was a young lecturer, or a mere beginner, when one day to my... Utter surprise, I received a letter from Hawthorne inviting me to join him in the excavation of a group of early Bronze Age burials. Well, naturally, I accepted at once. Hawthorne was a brilliant archaeologist. Here was my chance. I was met by Hawthorne at a lonely wayside station. He loaded my things onto an old army truck and off we drove. But after his first greeting, I found him very silent and wondered at it. Before long, we left the main road and followed a rough track that took us into the isolation of a bleak and desolate land. Perhaps half an hour later, we reached Hawthorne's tent. All around lay one vast expanse of heather, bog, and tussocky grass, studded here and there with the rough shapes of massive boulders, which, in the half-light of the evening, looked like huge monsters crouching and ready to spring. A few black-faced sheep moving and nibbling amongst them were oddly reassuring. Oh, I had no idea you were as isolated as this. You must have felt pretty lonely, eh? Yes, Hawthorne answered slowly. And then, that's why I've asked you to come. Though I need your help, too. There are probably ten or a dozen burials. They all seem to be near the surface, but, well, two workers are better than one. But did you come here all by yourself? I persisted. Surely you had someone with you at the start. I had an idea that he glanced at me sideways and then looked away. Chalmers was with me for a while. In fact, he came with me, but he had to go away. So I wrote to you. Oh, I'm glad you did, I answered. I've seen two or three isolated graves, but I've never seen a collective group of them. Tis a desolate place, I continued, looking at the wild expanse round us. There was a pause. Yes, it's desolate, he said. 
and the only living soul I've met is a shepherd. He comes to see me every day, every day, almost as though wanting to be sure I'm still alive. And I am still alive, he answered fiercely. I looked at him in astonishment. I'm sorry, he said, and his voice was normal again. It's my nerves. This, this place is becoming too much for me. Look, bring your traps into the tent. When we've had something to eat, I'll make my confession. Soon we were sitting at the table of an upturned box and consuming an excellent cold supper. The meal over, we put the dishes in the grass outside. They could be washed in the morning. Then we closed the flap of the tent and sat in our respective camp beds and literally looked at one another. Do you mind if we have a drink? Hawthorne asked, breaking the silence. <laughs> not become a habit, I assure you, but I think it would help me to tell you why I asked you to come. He produced a bottle of whiskey and poured out two quite ordinary tots. I was relieved to notice their moderation. Oh, confusion to our enemies, I said, holding up my glass. And knowledge as to who they are, came his response. I came here just over a fortnight ago, intending to excavate this group of early Bronze Age burials. They're referred to in an old history published about 1820, and when I came, I thought I was going to be the first to open them. But I was wrong. He paused there and took another sip at his whiskey. It was the shepherd who told me the other man, he continued. Apparently last year another archaeologist was here and opened two of the graves. As soon as I examined the site, I could see that two excavations had been made and then closed in again. But when, as my first task, I reopened the first of those two graves, I didn't like it one little bit. It looked exactly as though the burial had been made last year instead of, well, 3,500 years ago. The bones lay there in perfect position, the usual doubled-up posture of a short cyst, with the knees drawn up to the chin. But the stones lining the grave and covering it in were not only in perfect position also, but they were new and newly laid. It was a new grave for old bones, in some way at which I cannot even guess. Those old bones, dried, shrunk, and friable as they were, had been carefully and reverently reburied in a newly made cyst. But who had done it? It was certainly not done by my predecessor on the site. I tell you, he couldn't have done it. But can you imagine my thoughts when I reopened his second excavation and found that that, too, was a reburial in a newly made grave? You may think you can, but you haven't yet heard what the shepherd said. He poured out another small tot of whiskey and sipped it slowly, forcing himself into composure. You see... The shepherd insists that the place is holy, that no one can desecrate a grave with impunity, however old the grave may be, that the dead still protect the dead, and so forth and so on. He started the very first day I came. He got Chalmers pretty scared, though he didn't leave me then. He repeated it with additions when I'd reopened the first of those two graves. He repeated it with more additions when I'd reopened the second, and was more than a bit scared myself. And then he told me of the other man, 
how he'd done his best to persuade him to leave the graves alone and to go away, just as he was trying to persuade me to pack up and go away. But the other fellow wouldn't listen, just as I won't listen. So the dead took matters into their own hands. The day after the other fellow had opened the second grave, the shepherd couldn't find him on his daily visit. He was not in his tent, he was not at the site. But he found him in the end, lying by a clump of heather within a stone's throw of the grave he'd desecrated, just lying there, dead. I gave a start. Fairbairn, I said. He nodded. It must have been. I haven't checked up the dates yet, but it was last year that Fairbairn was found dead on some excavation which he was conducting alone, and they never established the cause of death. But I didn't know that it was here on this very site. And you still want to go on? I asked slowly. Yes, he almost shouted. The whole thing must be sheer nonsense. I refuse to let a shepherd's silly talk put me off. In fact... I've already opened the third grave, he continued more quietly. I finished the excavation this morning before you arrived. As good a short cyst as you'd ever hope to see, and nothing queer about it either. The stones lining it are as old as the hills, and the skeleton is all tumbled in on itself. I tell you, I shall go on until I've excavated the whole lot, or until something happens to me. He paused there and then went on. But I must have some help. That's why I invited you to join me. Now, I can tell you, I didn't write to you without asking myself again and again whether it was fair of me to bring you here at all. But why me, I asked. Well, he answered slowly, in the first place, I'd been told you'd got good nerves. And in the second place, you've got a medical degree. And if anything should happen to me, well, I'd have a fully qualified doctor on the spot even if all he could do would be to sign my death certificate. Oh, nonsense, I replied. Though somehow or other that one word didn't sound anything like so convincing as it should have done. But why did Chalmers leave? Oh, poor beggar. That shepherd's talk had got in his nerves. He was looking over his shoulder before we'd finished reopening the first of Fairbairn's two graves. He left when we'd just started in Fairbairn's second excavation. All because a stone fell. He said it was against the law of gravity. He said it must have been pushed, and as I hadn't pushed it, who had? Well, I think I lost my temper. At any rate, off he went. And rather childishly, I refused to drive him to the station, so he just took what he could carry and marched away. But I shall still go on. I've made up my mind. I've roughly filled in those first two graves. Better hide that evidence, whatever it may mean. But as I told you, I've opened a third grave, and there's nothing queer about that. You can see it for yourself tomorrow. No new cyst for old bones there. You'll stay to see that one anyway, won't you? Though if, after all you now know, you want to go back home first thing tomorrow morning, I'd be the last to blame you. He added with a ghost of a smile. And I'll drive you back to the station with all your things. Well, of course, there was only one answer to that. But I couldn't help the thought that had his letter told me even a little of all this, I might not have posted my acceptance as quickly as I'd done. Good, he said. We'll look at my third grave and the whole of the site tomorrow morning. And now, let's change the topic. 
And so for a while we talked of this and that, of archaeological studies in general, a little scandal, a little gossip. And it was after midnight when we both turned in and Hawthorne blew out the lamp. Although our concluding talk had been of other things, that earlier talk still dogged my mind. I lay awake trying to make sense of it all. Had Hawthorne and Chalmers just imagined things? How long I lay awake, I don't know. All I do know is that I fell asleep at last, that I had no bad dreams, and that next morning I awoke in the strange light always caused by the sun shining through tent canvas. I looked at my wristwatch. It said almost eleven o'clock. I sat up at once and looked across the tent to Hawthorne's bed. It was empty. Oh, good fellow. He'd left me to do the sleeping while he did the chores. I dressed slowly and strolled out of the tent. It was a lovely day. Blazing sun, clear sky, and a refreshing slight northeast wind. Then my eye caught something on the ground just by the tent. Our dirty dishes. Well, at least I could wash those out in the burn. We'd need them for breakfast anyway. Breakfast? I suddenly realized that we ought to have had breakfast long ago. Hawthorne ought to have awakened me. Well, where was Hawthorne? A sentence from our talk flashed through my mind. The dead still protect the dead. And at once, as if an echo, let the dead bury their dead. I was nearly in a panic then, but not quite. Calling myself a fool, I decided that I'd be certain to find Hawthorne at his excavation and probably completely oblivious of the time. I found him. He was lying, huddled up, beside a newly opened grave. I went down on my knees beside him, but I could find no cause of death. He was quite unmarked. And then, as I bent to lift him up, my glance fell upon that newly opened grave, Hawthorne's third, the one he was to show me that very day. Startled, I looked again. For that grave was far different from the description he'd given me only a few hours earlier. The bones lying there were in perfect position, and the stones lining the grave were clean, fresh cut, and newly laid. Let the Dead Bury Their Dead by William Croft Dickinson was read for the BBC by Moultrie Kelsall. That's the show for tonight. I want to thank you all for listening. And remember, you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash terror 1970 or you can find me on Instagram at Radio Show Nerd or on Twitter at Radio Show Nerd 1. Or maybe you'll find me on Twitter. That app is absolutely insane, but I digress. <laughs> if you'd like to drop me a line just to say hello, make a suggestion, a request, a, even a critique, just be respectful, please feel free to email me at radioshownerd at gmail.com. And I also have a YouTube channel, obviously entitled Terror Radio. Please check it out. Subscribe. Share and like the videos will be highly appreciated. Again, this is your host, Keith, 
better known as the Radio Show Nerd, signing off.